Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's April the 1st, 2022, on a very warm, sunny day in San Francisco on the west coast of the United States. Not too warm. Oof that will scare those of us worried about the end of the planet through global warming. The news on the science front and the environmental front, at least judging from a couple of shows recently on, on Keenon, is, if not heartening, certainly slightly warming. I uh, did a show with Tony Hiss, very distinguished environmental writer, uh, about a week ago, talking about how we can rescue the planet by giving half of the land back to nature. Um, his new paperback, Rescuing the Planet, is just out. Tony is cautiously optimistic about rescuing the planet through giving land back to nature. And so was a guest I had earlier this week, John W. Reed, one of my neighbors in San Francisco from uh, Sebastopol, just north of San Francisco. Um, he says that we need to save big forests if we're to save the planet. He has a new book out, Evergreen, Saving Big Forests to Save the Planet. And he reminded me in an interesting conversation that the forests of the world, particularly the five big forests, are still pretty much intact. So the news from both uh, Reed and Hiss is cautiously optimistic. I'm not sure, though, if my guest today is quite as optimistic Um he is the uh, iconic uh, environmental writer and activist, Eugene Linden. He has a new book out, out next week, Fire and Flood, a people's history of climate change from 1979 to the present. And he's joining us from uh, just upstate New York uh, on the Hudson. Uh, Eugene, as I said before, I was expecting you to appear a little bit more biblical with a beard because... You're pretty, pretty dire on this climate stuff, aren't you? Uh, I'm not as optimistic. I, uh, I, I think both those other authors are right, um, that giving half of uh, our land back to nature would be an important step forward, as would saving the big forests. I'm not as optimistic on the big forests, particularly the Amazon, but I'm fairly pessimistic about our ability to deal with the you know, quote unquote, existential crisis of climate change, just because we haven't done anything in 30 years. And uh, that is an enormous threat. And the path to de uh, defusing that bomb is very narrow indeed. What I like about the book, I've been reading it all morning, Eugene, you're extremely erudite. I mean, you're obviously, I wouldn't say biased, but you do have an agenda. But it's a historical book. It's not just a uh, um, a book about the present, and it's not an imaginary book. It's it's a book about the last 30 or 40 years, since 1979, actually, people's history of climate change. And one of the things that occurred to me is it seems to run parallel with the history of um, neoliberalism. I did a show with the Cambridge University historian Gary Gerstle earlier this week. He has a book out, The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order, America and the World in the Free Market Era. Do you think that there's some sort of peculiar synergy between neoliberalism and this 
inability to address our climate crisis? Absolutely. I, in the concluding chapters, I address that explicitly. I think that <clears throat> there is uh, the way we do business um, configures us to not recognize long-term threats or be able to deal with them. And in essence, for, you know, creates a system that is designed to drive off cliffs. Um, and I can be more specific on that. I think that the momentum, the incentives for business as usual are enormous. Um, and I, we can get into this in a bit, but I use the example of the insurance industry um, to show that even an industry that is built on assessing risk um, and um, sees a threat as an existential threat that the power of the incentives at the retail level are such that it might not even act on that perception. Um, and so absolutely, I agree with that. I was thinking of you also, and I, I did a show um, last weekend with Daniel Jurgen, the energy expert, who talked about in the context of the war with Ukraine, the prescience of American policy when it comes to shale we also did a show with Helen Thompson about Ukraine and in some senses returning us to the 1970s of inflation and oil shortages. How worried are you um, about the way in which a war in Ukraine could return us to um, a world where we, we fail to understand the real danger. I mean, Putin, of course, is one danger, but the real danger is climate. Uh, absolutely, that's precisely right. I mean, I, I'm very worried because this war couldn't have come at a worse time with regard to climate change in the sense that we don't have time. We have to be lowering fossil fuel uh, emissions now. Um, and what has happened, of course, is with the war, um, it's caused a complete... Um, reversal of any momentum uh, towards uh, reducing drilling. I mean, it's absurd to, uh, I mean, the level of debate, you know, which makes this direct connection between the war in Ukraine and high gas prices in the United States, it just doesn't fly. It's, uh, we've got to keep our heads about this. Um, the gas prices are high in the U.S. in part because of a legacy of the COVID slowdown and then the extremely rapid bounce back and recovery in the economy from that, which allowed us to get ahead of our, um, of our oil supplies uh, production for a bit. Um, we get 3% of our oil from Russia. That's that it can be made up uh, in, you know, immediately. Europe has a bigger problem, of course. Um, and, uh, but the, the last thing we want to do um, when you think about it is, uh, you know, lower the price of oil, increase demand, increase our dependence on homicidal psychopaths like uh, Putin and uh, Mohammed bin Salman. Um, what we need to be doing is obviously lowering demand, the accelerating the shift towards uh, EVs and renewables, which is ongoing, um, would help do that. So I think we face a Hobson's choice right now because on the one hand, if we backslide um, and start renewing um, and upping oil production in response to the war on Ukraine, we're only hastening the day when the earth reaches a boiling point. And that is the bigger crisis, as you said. Let's go back to the book, Fire and Flood, The People's History of Climate Change from 1979 to the present. 
You dedicate the book, Eugene, to a number of very distinguished scientists. F. Sherwood Rowland, who won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry in 1995. Uh, Wallace S. Brockner. Uh, I'd never heard of most of these people. They're obviously very familiar for uh, environmentalists and scientists. Ralph Ciceroni. Paul uh, Crutzen, who's Dutch. Uh, Stephen Schneider. Uh, Hans Oschiger, a, a Swiss uh, scientist, George uh, Waddell, uh, and Vera Bahadran Ramathana, an Indian scientist. Why are these scientists so critical, and why didn't we listen, Eugene? Well, one, they recognized the, uh, uh, the threat of climate change early on, and in a couple of cases shifted their focus from their earlier work to climate change because they recognized the severity of the, of, of the crisis. Um, I'll single out one in particular, it's Wallace Broker, um, who um, pioneered the, uh, the notion that climate does not change at a stately pace, but actually can change quite rapidly. And this, is, this was something that actually uh, was profoundly important to understanding the nature of the threat. Because up until 1993, the conventional wisdom was that climate change at a stately pace. And in fact, that any changes would be uh, modulated and, and um, occur over centuries, if not thousands of years. What, and the reason for that was that up until the, the, the late 80s, um, paleogeochemists did not have the tools to reconstruct past climates with precision enough to see um, the, the rapid changes that actually were embedded in the uh, in the in the uh, ice core records and other records, but couldn't be determined because you couldn't see with that final resolution. Well, out of um, out of the uh, 1980s, these proxies for ancient climates were refined, and um, two drilling projects, ice core drilling projects in Greenland, um, uh, one a European project, one an American project. Um, pioneered by people uh, and, and supported by people like, like Wallace Broker, um, produced these results that showed that in the past, there were, were these extremely rapid changes of climate. And so um, to use, I think it was Richard Alley who put it this way, the old idea of climate change was that it was like a dial. The new idea was like a switch. Well, if it's like a switch, that's profoundly important for understanding what we're doing and overloading the atmosphere um, with uh, greenhouse gas emissions, because you don't know when this rapid change will come about. Now, keep in mind that the signal of climate change, uh, the warmest years began in the 80s, but you couldn't separate the noise from the signal. By the 90s, you could. And what we began to see was that a prediction from 1979 by a distinguished panel, um, <clears throat> Woodwell being a member of it, George Woodwell, um, had said that if we don't do something about greenhouse gases, we'll see changes by the year 2000. Well, we saw changes starting a decade earlier than that. Um, but it hasn't taken hold, as you suggested, in the public's mind. And in fact, a, a Gallup poll of a couple of years ago showed that 45% of Americans um, didn't believe that climate change would have serious impacts on their lives or during their lifetimes. This was a poll taken at a point when, of course, Climate change already was having serious impacts. Just ask the uh, residents of the fire zones in your state of California. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we've had, it, what, what is uh, unusual about climate change 
in many cases, the public um, is ahead of the scientists in terms of understanding a threat because science proceeds slowly. In this case, the scientific consensus gelled in the, in the 90s and the public is still um, kind of blase about it. There's a bigger issue public, as it's called, who, who are concerned about it. But as you see from all our recent elections, it's not a winning, uh, it's not a winning program for uh, getting elected president. I want to talk about how we address this uh, after the break, but we've done a number of shows about the implications. We did one show about the terrible fire in paradise just north of San Francisco with mm -hmm. the author Lizzie Johnson, one of the worst forest fires. We also did a, a show with the Miami-based uh, journalist Maria Alejandro Ariza about Miami's future on the shores of climate catastrophe. So this is breaking through. One thing I wanted to ask you was when all this started, when it can be marked, we did a show um, with a journalist, Scott Carney, who, who wrote an interesting book about um, the war in Bangladesh uh, in 1970, which resulted uh, in three million dead hmm. Bangladeshis. I wonder whether that kind of event, that terrible storm in Bangladesh could be included in the consequences of global warming. People just, I didn't understand that until I spoke to Carney. Do you think that this sort of truly genocidal catastrophe is still somewhat of a secret? Um, yes. Um, I, there's a number of things to unpack in what you just said, but uh, to, to start with the last first. Um, what we see around the world now is that parts of the globe are becoming uninhabitable. Um, it's not quite the same as a storm, but what happens, of course, is if some place is uninhabitable, people leave and they migrate. And where do they go? Um, and that's, that's destabilizing, as we've seen in Europe. And that's only going to increase in the future. And it actually could come to the United States. Um, the second part of that, where you mentioned those earlier books about people beginning to see the light about the threat of climate change to Miami. Paradise and uh, Miami, yeah. Yeah, I, it, keep in mind that Miami is now the hottest destination in the, in the country. In fact, it, people are flooding into it despite that. Um, I think the different, California is a very different story because uh, insurers are pulling out right and left and um, you are out, totally out of luck if you can't get insurance and you're trying try, uh, fire insurance and you're trying to buy a home or sell a home to somebody who can't get flood insurance. Um, and that brings us back to this question of insurance. For instance, the campfire of a couple of years ago, I think that caused about $12.5 billion in damage. Um, after that, there was a quote in the New York Times from an insurance company lobbyist who said, we're scrambling to figure out this climate threat. Well, 27 years ago in 1994, 20, 28 years ago, um, I wrote an article for Time magazine about how the insurance industry could be the white knight of climate change. And um, I expected that because uh, it posed an existential threat to the business uh, and uh, nullified all their risk models, that the climate, they do what they did with seatbelts or with electrical standards, they'd lobby Congress and through pricing that they'd um, you know, they'd force people to move away from harm's way. And, uh, and yet 26 years later, they're scrambling. And so that conundrum is one of the things that led me to write this book because why it didn't happen is fascinating. It didn't happen because 
the incentives at the re uh, it didn't happen for a couple of reasons, but the incentives at the retail re uh, level of insurance is to keep writing policies until disaster actually happens. Um, they assume that the risks are priced in and also policies are canceled. Most of them um, are cancelable on a yearly basis. And so if things turn bad, they feel they can get out. That turned out not to be the case. The more interesting part for me was the in, the ingenuity at the reinsurance age of spreading and camouflaging and defusing risk. Um, after Hurricane Andrew, uh, which did uh, massive damage and put about 12 insurers out of business in 1992, a lot of insurers went bankrupt and or left Florida. So what did the insurance industry do, the reinsurance industry? A guy named Eberhard Muller in, in uh, Germany at Hanover Ray came up with an idea of what's called a cat bond. And it's a catastrophe bond. And, and this is a, a way in which they will take institutional investors and say a, a $100 million, $500 million, $1 billion bond, and you're getting a very high interest rate, making a bet that a category five hurricane will not hit a place like Miami or New Orleans in the next three years. So even if the climate risk is doubled, um, uh, for a category five hurricane in a hundred years, it's only gone from one to 2%. And so for investors, it was a very popular and still is a very popular instrument because, um, they're getting an interest rate way above market. But secondly, it's non-correlated to other risk assets. In other words, if the stock market collapsed, that bond is still going to pay 8% unless there is a category five hurricane. So that allowed the insurance industry to access trillions of dollars of capital and institutional money and, and, and offload a lot of the risks they were taking from climate change. So all these things conspired to camouflage how risk was priced. And the result of that was that tens of millions of people moved to the riskiest areas of, of California and, and the West Coast. Other millions moved to the coast of the United States, which were vulnerable to sea level rise, storms and floods. Really interesting stuff. Uh, essential reading, I think. Fire and flood, the people's history of climate change from 1979 to the present. I hadn't heard about the centrality. I didn't understand the centrality of these complex laws around insurance, but it, it makes a lot of sense to me by Eugene Linden. Um, he's the also author of a number of books about environment and the planet, the ragged edge of the world you may be familiar with, The Winds of Change, and perhaps his best-known book, The Future in Plain Sight. I'm going to take a break now, um, Eugene, and after the break, I want to talk specifically not about the problem, but how we're going to fix it. So we'll be back in 60 seconds with Eugene Linden, the author of Fire and Flood. Uh, we're going to talk about how to actually address the planetary crisis after the break. Hold on tight, everyone. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub 
page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live. Uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So. Whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now, back to Keenon. We are back with Eugene Linden, the author of Fire and Flood, A People's History of Climate Change from 1979 to the Present. Eugene, before the break, you were arguing that uh, the laws, the financial laws around the insurance industry uh, have enabled the insurance companies to get away with insuring uh, properties in high-risk zones. Is that the fix? Do we do it through the market, changing well, the market, these laws? Well, the market will be a harsh fixer of all this because uh, if it gets to that point, because uh, risk has been underpriced in these areas for so many decades and all these millions have moved there. If and when um, properties become unsaleable or deeply discounted because of the risks, uh, climate risks, and that finally gets expressed in the market, as it may be soon in California, by the way, um, you could have a financial crisis that is much larger than 2008, and, and and it won't go away in a year or two as the 2008 crisis did, um, because the, 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 the predicates for the crisis will only get worse in the coming years. So um, yes, it, uh, it, uh, the market could straighten things out if, if, if it was priced fairly. One of the reasons, you know, apart from the, uh, the differing incentives at the retail end of the insurance industry and at the reinsurance end, Another thing is that when the insurers, for instance, uh, couldn't price to the fair risks in Florida anymore, most of them pulled out. And so what happened was the state stepped in with a, a, a state-wide uh, uh, and state-backed insurance policy for, the, uh, for uh, wind risk. Um, flood risk, of course, is taken up by the um, federal government through FEMA, and that's also underpriced for many of these zones. It's and and so and then, of course, there around the country, there are a lot of other backstops for those who can't get insurance or or to underprice risk in risky areas. It's an equity problem as well, um, because it's not just rich people who moved to the coast. Um, there are plenty of, you know, ultra wealthy who moved in Miami and, um, you know, they they may recognize the risk of climate change. But if they have the use of their uh, condo for 10 years, they're happy or they're hopeful beachfront house for 10 or 20 years. But um, the uh, poor middle class, um, if it was fairly priced, probably couldn't live there. And, uh, you know, uh, people have pointed out that, for instance, the Miami, uh, the Florida Keys, um, if that was fairly priced for the risk of, uh, of climate change through sea level rise, storms, et cetera, 
Um, very few of the people who are in the service industry for the tourist industry um, could afford to live there. And, uh, and so it, it, it's, not, it's, it, it's not a simple problem to solve. It certainly is. And one of the other people you dedicate the book to is uh, another very distinguished scientist, Michael E. Mann, distinguished professor of atmospheric science. He has a new best-selling book out, The New Climate War. Is this a war, Eugene? Should we borrow that metaphor? How should we use it? I hope it's not a war. I mean, it's not. Obviously, it's not a war. I mean, it could be a war down the road. I understand what... Dr. Mann is talking about, by the way, uh, he was heroic in sort of resisting the denialists, uh, you know, over what was called climate gate when those emails. Yeah. So, so maybe uh, thinking of it as a war in, in informational terms. Well, I I understand. I mean, what I, I make a parallel elsewhere. Um, When you think about it, the best analogy is, is COVID denial. If people who are dying of the disease can deny it's a real disease, even as they're dying of it. You can imagine that once something becomes politicized as COVID did and as climate change did in the late nineties, what the facts don't matter, the messenger matters. And if the messenger is deemed illegitimate, then nothing they can say is going to break through. That leads back to what you said earlier, which is that the market ultimately will fix this because Ultimately, the risk can be spread. It could be camouflaged, camouflaged. Um, but if it's real, it doesn't go away. And if it's underpriced or underrecognized, of course, it just makes for a bigger crisis down the road. Um, so, you know, I spend a good deal of time in the book discussing all the efforts, including mine and many, many other people, trying to arouse public op- opinion on this issue to recognize the degree of the threat. And it has been an enormously frustrating thing. I wrote my first article on climate change in 1988. We, the world began to take action on climate, supposedly began to talk about taking action in 1988, 1990. Since then, um, emissions have risen 60%. Now think of what's happened since then. Um, the developed, the European, American, Japanese, um, all have been taking actions uh, mostly at an ad hoc way to lower emissions and have succeeded to some degree. A lot of adoption of renewables, energy efficiency has produced enormous reduction in emissions. What didn't happen was that the early agreements left out China and other developing nations and China alone now accounts for more emissions than the EU and the G20 combined. Um, It was half the emissions of the US in 1990, it's now two and a half times their emissions, two times their emissions, sorry. Um, the other thing that's happened since 1990 is that two and a half billion people have been added to the global population. The average emissions per person globally is about four tons. The U.S. it's 20 tons to put it into perspective. In other words, we have a bogey that's 10 billion tons higher in emissions um, than it would have been had we taken begun to take action and back then, and it just makes it that much harder for us to take action now. And so that what I tried to say at the beginning is we're really running out of time, which is why this distraction and disruption of the Ukraine war is so devastating, Um, because we have to start doing something right now. And fortunately, there are things we can do. You talk about the opportunity narrowing in terms of time. 
but you also talked about politics and the way in which we've confused the message and the messenger. Did a show with Chris Goodall. I don't know if you know his book, What We Need to Do Now for a Zero Carbon Future. Mm-hmm. He argued, I think, like you, that the message and the messenger was getting confused. And he suggested that what he called meaningful climate change might stand a better chance as a centrist issue rather than one um, peddled, if that's the right word, by AOC and Bernie Sanders. But who in the center would embrace this cause? Where are you going to find a um, an attractive, accessible politician who will make this their calling card, their defining um, their defining ideal. So long as they have the existing uh, reservoir of political strategists, nowhere. Um, you know, I, I, Gore, who was right. won the Nobel Prize actually later for his efforts on climate change, never talked about it much during the campaign. John Kerry never talked about it much during the campaign, even though he's now our chief climate negotiator and has had a sterling record in the past. Well, they both lost the presidencies, right? Well, they both did, but they both, um, their strategists were telling them it is not a voting issue. And we saw that, um, you know, uh, uh, Steyer didn't get anywhere running on the issue. Um, the, the former governor of Washington didn't get anywhere running on the issue. The problem is, is that there's a level of ignorance. And uh, and again, this question of demonizing the messenger, look at what happened when Biden brought it up during the debates. Um all of a sudden, Trump saying, oh, great, you just lost Pennsylvania because he called for a moratorium on fracking. And then his staff went into furious spin mode saying, oh, I don't know, it's going to take a long time. They backpedaled. And this is 19, uh, 2020 when, the, the, when, when we're already seeing the effects. So um, I argue somewhat differently. I think uh, what, the change is going to come from both the bottom and from at the international level. And uh, when uh, as People shift just because of prices in oil uh, and gasoline to EVs and things like that. Uh, They're already technologically significant. For the first time in history, um, solar and wind accounted for 10% of electrical production uh, last year in 2021. That's technologically significant. That is only going to expand. Um, So I I argue that two things need to happen. Um, The one is that... um, at the international level, I argue for a universal tariff on climate uh, related to climate change. And I do this because what we've seen is that the Kyoto process invited endless negotiations. We're now at COP26, for instance, in terms of trying to address climate change, Congress of Parties 26. 26 Congress of Parties have done very, very little to do anything because they provide enormous opportunities for mischief for those who would delay action. And really the playbook for those, the fossil fuel lobby, was to delay action and sow confusion. And they succeeded at it brilliantly. So any agreement on climate has to be simple. Um, so it doesn't have endless negotiations. It has to be um, universal with no exceptions. So you don't have the free rider problem that let uh, Chinese emissions go uh, skyrocket. And it has to be immediately deployable. Now, I know people hate tariffs, but if it's universal, no one can use it to uh, get a comparative advantage. When I raised the idea, a couple of people came back and said, why would China agree? Um, You know, the largest emitter in the world. Well, for China, 
let's say there's a, we ask a, a, for a, an annual reduction of 3% emissions a year um, for every country on the planet, right? Um, China would have the easiest uh, uh, job of anybody. They are, uh, there's only 11 countries in the world that are less energy wasteful than China, more energy wasteful than, than China. Energy efficiency actually is profitable when you deploy it. And so you can actually improve lower costs, improve profits, and lower emissions at the same time. The, the European nations, to agree, uh, Japan and a lesser degree, the US, have largely optimized for energy efficiency over the past 30 years. And so they have less to gain from it. There are other ways we could lower emissions. I'll get to that in a second. So what I'm saying is that big developing nations might have an easy time um, meeting a 3% target, in which case there would be no tariff. Then the, um, the wh so what to do for the developed nations? Well, uh, we could keep doing what we're, we're already doing, which is movement towards renewables and EVs. But um, I argue um, that there is an enormous opportunity at repurposing and readapting existing technologies. For instance, um, steel accounts for something like 8% of global emissions. Um, MIT scientists came up with a way of making steel uh, by running an electrical current through uh, iron oxides and other metals, and it's producing zero emissions, of course, unless the electrical current comes from producing emissions. Um, similarly, um, limestone, um, you can combine CO2 taken out of the atmosphere with limestone to make to with calcium to make synthetic limestone, a company's trying to do that. And um, that could take billions of tons of carbon out of the air. Um, Brazil, if they stop deforestation, getting back to your earlier mention of that earlier book, um, could lower its emissions by more than 3% a year, doing something it ought to be doing anyway. But then, all right, so- um, yeah, 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 I mean, I, I buy, I, you know, a million times more than this, uh, about this, obviously, Eugene, but how are you going to convince Bolsonaro to stop cutting trees down in the Amazon. Uh, let, let me go. Is, is, is if there is a universal uh, tariff, the best thing about it is that the uh, exporting people would have an incentive to not have that tariff apply and they could put pressure on the government to uh, to lessen illegal deforestation. You mentioned you've been in this game a while now. You're one yeah. of the great authorities. What about the generational element here? Are you seeing a shift generationally? Obviously, Yes, Thunberg has become symbolic of a youth rebellion against the blah blah of our generation. Are things really changing, and could that be the key, the key thing which makes us finally come to terms with this crisis? I, if they ever wake up, I mean, uh, the the younger generation talks a good game on all these issues, um, but when it comes to voting and and doing other things in real action it's only a small proportion of them that actually get out of bed and do that. So um, I think, yeah, if the younger generation was mobilized, they actually see the threat more clearly since they're gonna be living with it um, than a lot of their elders. Um, it, uh, it, could, it, it, could, it could indeed make a huge difference. But there's, there's one other thing that I've come upon recently that I think could be a get out of jail free card um, that might avert the worst of the, the disaster that's coming down the pipe. Um, and again, it's a repurposing of an existing technology. Um, there, well, there's, a, there's long been a dream of trying to access what's called deep geothermal. 
you go down a few miles into the, the drilling down into the uh, into the crust a few miles and you reach an almost infinite reservoir of heat that's 400 to 500 degrees centigrade about a thousand degrees fahrenheit right the problem has been all along people have tried this is that once you get about five uh, three to uh, 12 miles down you run into what's called basement rock which is granite or basalt that's five to ten times harder than sedimentary rock and it's resistant to most conventional drilling techniques. Again, some scientists out of MIT um, came up or, or have adapted a technology called millimeter, millimeter wave beams um, that is used to create the plasmas um, that are in fusion research, right? And these millimeter wave beams since 2007 have been shown to be able to vaporize rock. Um, that's, they know they can do that. Um, the, and MIT has licensed a company called Quays Energy to uh, commercialize worldwide that technology. Combined with 100 years of experience in conventional oil drilling, this could be the, the sort of special sauce that goes, this probably will be the special sauce that goes through, set, uh, goes through basement rock. Well, what about the what the, the the is happening in Iceland and elsewhere about burying carbon? Is that a another pipe dream or is that realistic? That's realistic, but uh, let me just finish on this one because the the real virtue of deep geothermal is that sixty percent of American electricity comes from steam turbines. 85, 75 to eighty percent globally come from steam turbines. With deep geothermal. Any steam turbine in the world could be retrofitted to uh, produce electricity using zero carbon steam from deep earth heat um, at one to three cents per kilowatt hour, which is cheap as cheap or cheaper than any conventional or any known source of energy. So that's why I wanted to finish that thought, because the, that is a solution at the scale of the problem. Okay. Um, and then taking carbon sequestering carbon that's that was that earlier thing i was mentioning with the the production of uh of of, of concrete and synthetic limestone yes you could take a ton of uh, a billion ton of of carbon out of the atmosphere and it's uh, it provided that you can do this at scale at competitive prices and uh, you know, these companies argued you can finally eugene We've had so many shows about the climate diet, simple ways for all of us to trim our carbon footprint, everything from how we bathe to how we drive to how we eat. Can we, as individuals, make any difference? Or is it really more in these major scalable scientific breakthroughs that the change is going to happen? I, yeah, I, I do think we, we can individually make a difference. You know, anybody who buys an EV, you know, consumers are 70% of the economy. If they're climate aware in their purchases, that will change the economy. And the politicians will follow, by the way. The politicians are, politicians are never going to lead on this, but they will follow. Um, and of course, so I mean, if we move, people move towards eating less meat, that'll help enormously. And it'll also improve people's health and it'll also save wildlands, right? So you get a lot of virtues, a, a, a lot of downstream benefits from just that one shift. So yes, people people are the, the key to making a difference, and it'll be uh, people, uh, you know, putting aside their partisanship in, in the U.S. at least, um, and uh, you know, seeing the threat for what it is that is going to have to open the way to doing that. 
Otherwise, so basically you, what you're saying, Eugene, closer. as you say at the end of the book, um, our time frame is narrowing, but we can still save ourselves. That's what you argue in Fire and Flood, right? Yes. I, 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 that's why I mentioned those two things. Is there is a narrow path out of this, but you know, the path gets narrower by the, by the year. It's not something where we have time. You know, what, what's really terrible, this battle was lost in the 90s. Um, we, we, where the decisions were, where China began its industrialization and it, instead of leapfrogging technologies, it chose coal and so did India. Um, and, and where back in the 90s, everybody thought we had time, um, but we didn't have time. Now we know we don't have time, but we're not really doing anything yet. Well, that's the challenge, the, I guess, the depressing truth in fire and flood, the people's history of climate change from 1979 to the present, the very distinguished uh, environmental writer, um, Eugene Linden. Uh, Eugene, on top of your new book, what else should people be reading? It doesn't have to be environmental. Anything that might cheer us up in these dark oh, days sure. of well, spring 2022? Here's a book that came out 20 years ago, and I just finished it today. And it is truly remarkable. It's called Overstory by Richard Powers. Um, there's just immense erudition about the nature of trees in the book. I didn't read it. I had it on my, on, my, on my bedside table for years without reading it. But people kept emailing me and saying, this is a masterpiece and it changed their life. And um, it really is the story of America from the perspective of trees. Um, and, but the, it's also the interwoven stories of like four, four or five main characters. Um, and the, the, it, it's a novel and the dialogue yeah. is extraordinarily precise. So it's, it's, uh, you know, it's a tour de force. It may even be a masterpiece. I mean, yeah, his late, I don't know if you've read his latest novel, but it's also quite profound and moving. Yeah. I, I, I found it an extraordinary book. Now a fun book, um, which will make which makes sushi eaters like myself very uncomfortable is a book called what a fish knows by jonathan balcom and he goes into great de de depth in showing that fish are far more aware than we give them credit for of course <laughs> that's the last thing you want to hear if you're giving up meat um have you did it, that make you give up sushi eugene um no i haven't given up sushi um the uh Although, uh, you know. So you're a sinner like the rest of us. Well, I'm a sinner, but I'm, I'm also, I mean, evolutionarily, I'm an omnivore. Um, and, you know, a, a fish doesn't die in bed. If I'm not eating it, something is eating it. Um, and so, you know, in a way, I mean, for instance, uh, in a limited way, I think uh, eating free range meat is probably okay. I, I am a, a foe. Mm. Of, Maybe uh, that 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 should be the this fun. that should be the title of your of your next book, Eugene. A fish doesn't die in bed. Wonderful, uh, <laughs> wonderful phrase. Uh, we could talk about this all day. Maybe another show. We could talk about the food and the agricultural element. But Eugene Linden, the author of Fire and Flood, congratulations on the new book. And finally, uh, Eugene, April first, twenty twenty two. In all seriousness, uh, who's running the world these days, Eugene? Who's in charge? Oh, it's quite simple. That's an obvious answer to that. Volodymyr Zelensky.